Good morning. This morning's scripture is going to be from Matthew 5, verses uh, 27 to 32. The first part will be en français, and the second part will be in English. Matthew 5, 27 à 30. Vous avez appris qu'il a été dit, tu ne commettras pas d'adultère. Eh bien, moi je vous dis, si quelqu'un jette sur une femme un regard chargé de désir, il a déjà commis adultère avec elle dans son cœur. Par conséquent, si ton œil droit te fait tomber dans le péché, arrache-le et jette-le au loin, car il vaut mieux par toi perdre un de tes organes que de te voir ton corps entier précipité en enfer. Si ta main droite cause ta chute, coupe-la et jette-la au loin. Il vaut mieux pour toi perdre un de tes membres de voir tout ton corps jeté en enfer. Matthew 5, verses 31 to 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Thanks, Michael. Good morning, church family. How y'all doing? Good? Uh, if you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And... Uh, it is, uh, today is going to be my last time preaching for a few months before I head out on a sabbatical, and I hope you'll stick around at the very end so I can share just a little bit personally from myself and the other elders. Uh, and it's uh, two things heading into today's teaching, my last one for a while. First of all, I got all of three hours of sleep last night, uh, but don't worry, it was broken up, not all at once. And... Uh, I don't know, just a lot running through my mind, kind of heading into this, so you guys can pray for me that the Lord would uh, give me clarity of thought. But also, like, we divorce, yay! You know, the Sermon on the Mount, planning out this sermon schedule, it's like, I'll do that one, and then I'll leave for a while. So, <laughs> seems to work out in my favor. But, I love you, and I am uh, really grateful to have this opportunity to teach us today, and I will just say this up front. There's no way, this is a very complicated subject, a very, not only just a complicated subject biblically and theologically, but just relationally and people's hearts and the messiness of life. There's no way that I could say everything that needs to be said about this subject. And I have a lot of resources, additional resources up on the church website if you would like to press in and dig in more on the other side of this teaching. And so I will just encourage you to do that. And let's go ahead and let's pray before the Lord together and ask for him to lead and guide our time together. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord, we thank you that you are, as we just sang, you are just and yet you are also kind. And in our own flesh, in our own humanity, we don't understand how those things can work together sometimes. But we choose to put our faith in you, the God who is righteous and holy and yet also loving and merciful. And so we bring our hearts before you today, Lord, and I pray uh, whether uh, anybody here in, in the room or joining us online is married or single, unmarried yet, or divorced or widowed or wherever we might be, even young, Lord, teenagers or young, uh, young adults, Lord, I just pray that you would help us all to drink deeply of the truth of your grace. May we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, our perfect bridegroom, we the imperfect bride, but Jesus, our perfect groom. May we see his glory on display today. I pray these things in his name. Amen. 
So a few years ago, I think it's about five years now, uh, I did a wedding ceremony for a younger couple in the church, and it was an outdoor wedding planned in August. And, you know, pretty good bet, Seattle, August, outdoor wedding, weather's going to be nice. Well, guess what? We woke up to uh, the weather report that morning that it was going to be some combination of like a hurricane and a typhoon and a tornado, and I'm sitting there like, oh no, and so I drive out. It was like at a barn in Snohomish because that's what the youths do these days. And I drove out to this barn in Snohomish, and I'm sitting with the couple, and I'm like, oh no, like, is the weather going to be okay? And what's going to happen? And so we start the wedding ceremony, and I'm doing my normal 90-minute sermon that I do for a wedding ceremony. And no, I'm just kidding. It's usually only about 12 to 15 minutes, but I can start to feel the first little raindrops falling. So I, so I made like the princess bride and skipped to the end and I kind of quickly, quickly got to the end and, and the raindrops are starting to fall and we go, we all kind of run underneath the covering where the reception was to be held and oh my goodness, that is when the rain hit. And I was like, it's like rain on your wedding day? Like, isn't that ironic? And I'm just thinking these things to myself and, and I watched as, and, and you know, this is like the kind of thing I'm always looking for when I perform a wedding ceremony, and I watched as the, the bride grabbed her husband, and they just went running out into the rain and just started dancing. And I was like, yes, because if she can deal with this, and if he can deal with this, it's like, man, what a, what a beautiful thing. They'll, they'll be able to, to weather, they'll be able to weather the, the, the real storms of life that come in their marriage. And it was such an encouraging moment for me. It was, it was you know, it's just this, this beautiful moment of, of seeing romantic love on, on full display and to see the joy that comes when, when romantic love is, is lifted up. I, I did just watch The Princess Bride with my uh, younger two kids a couple weeks ago, and it makes me think of Miracle Max, and he goes, true love is the greatest thing in the world. But it's, here's the problem. When it's so good and it's so beautiful, we all are filled, even those around are filled with a sense of delight and joy, but what about when it goes bad? The thing about romantic love is, is, is it can be so incredibly good, but the reason it can be so incredibly good is the same reason it can be so painful when it goes wrong. And that reason is the big idea of what I'm intending to communicate you to, to you today is that romantic love is a portrait of divine love. It's so good when it's good. And when it's bad, it's so incredibly painful because it is meant to point us to the deepest mystery, the deepest, most profound mystery in all of existence that God loves us. You know, the Bible tells a story about marriage, does it not? You read through the Bible, you see in the very, very earliest pages, the first page, you see that, that marriage was instituted by God. God is the one who came up with the idea of marriage. This is not a human invention. This is a divine invention that God created humanity out of the overflow of the relationship of the persons of the Trinity. We are Christians. We believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, all three fully God. And it is out of the overflow of that type of love and care and communion that God created humanity for dwelling with and in him 
We were created to dwell in relationship, a mysterious and profound relationship with the one true God who created all things. And, and marriage, that, that with and in sort of language, is meant to reflect the Trinitarian nature of God's love. And God created marriage to be male and female. He, he created the man and then he said it's not good for the man to be alone. And, and the scripture tells us that he created the female out of the side of the man to be his partner. Uh, I think it's Matthew Henry, a Puritan preacher, said uh, that, it, that, that the woman was not created from the head of the man to domineer over him or on the feet of the man to be trod on by him, but from the side of the man that they would be partners and equals together in ruling and stewarding over God's good creation. And it, God says that the, the woman is, is this, this, this suitable other, the word in the Hebrew is the etzer, and it gets often translated as the helper. But when we think helper, we often can think of like a, like a hired hand or something like that. But that's just not it at all because the, the Bible uses this word etzer about God, that he is our helper, that he is the one that comes along and, and, and makes it so that we are able to actually do what we could not do on our own. And so the man and the woman are created to partner together. And in this male and femaleness, even though there's otherness, there's sameness and there's enjoyment in that. You think of Adam when he sees her and he sings the song, this now at last is, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And God intended for this, this union to be a permanent thing. It's, it's a covenantal sort of relationship. It's, it's a binding thing. It's not just something we do when we're feeling like it, but it's something that, that God created to be this. In, 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 human, the, in human relationships, nothing goes deeper. Nothing is more permanent. It's a covenantal, lifelong union where the scripture uses this language of the two becoming one flesh. It's like you can't rip apart one flesh without doing incredible damage. And there's this rulership. The rulership is that they would partner together and multiply through childbearing. That when a husband and wife come together in the, the intimacy of, of marital love, think about it. I mean, just that God granted to us the potency, the power of creating new human life. What an amazing thing that is from the Lord. And, it's, and it's, it's meant to be eschatological, and that's just a, a big fancy word that simply means that this marriage relationship points to a greater reality than itself. That human marriage, human love that Jesus uh, teaches won't be the same after his return and after the final establishment of his kingdom, but that human romantic love points to a greater reality that it is important, but it in and of itself is not ultimate. But then sin enters into the picture. In the third chapter of the Bible, the man and the woman don't believe the voice of the Lord. And instead of marriage now being from God and about God, it becomes about us and our personal fulfillment. And instead of partnering and, and ruling together, there's subjugation and domineering and using others to make ourselves feel good. Instead of one man and one woman in, in a permanent covenantal union, we come up with all sorts of different combinations and permutations based on the desires of the body. And instead of permanent covenantal union, we follow the theology so well expressed by Ariana Grande, and we say, thank you, next. 
least we're not lying about it anymore. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching what it will look like when God is fully in charge. This is a kingdom manifesto. This is Jesus talking about God taking charge. That the kingdoms of this world have failed in many ways and that God is now reestablishing his rule and his reign here on earth through the Messiah, through the King, Jesus. And so, of course, that's going to impact every area of life, finances and, and, and uh, relationships, and yes, sex and marriage. So last week, you might remember from verse 27, it said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we know that, that, that God is after our hearts, not merely our external behavior. Amen? So naturally, as Jesus is preaching on adultery, it flows into the subject of divorce. Skipping a little bit ahead in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So it's easy to see the point. The main point is easy to see, that, that Jesus is holding marriage in an extremely high regard. It is not to be taken lightly. It is not to be taken flippantly. It's meant to be this sacred, permanent thing. It's a kingdom ideal. But the problem is that we don't yet live in the fully realized kingdom of God, do we? Sometimes we talk about it in this language of the already but the not yet, that God's kingdom has already come, but it has not yet come in totality. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth, just like it's done in heaven. So it leaves us with this conundrum. What do we do on the other side of perfection? If, 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 if Jesus' kingdom was here completely, well, yeah, of course there would be no divorce. There would be no adultery. There would be no anger. There would be no lying like we're going to learn about next week. What do we do with the reality of broken marriages and divorce on this side of Jesus' perfect eternal kingdom? And I'll just say right now, I was reading through a number of books, a number of commentaries. I think I read more this last week on the subject than maybe any sermon I've ever preached for Sound City Bible Church. And one of the pastors that I read is a, a pastor that I deeply respect. His name is Sam Storms. And he, he just summed it up so well. But to paraphrase him, he, you know, he says, you're trying to preach or teach on this subject. feels like you're trying to do kind of two things at the same time, and it feels like an impossible task. On the one hand, you're trying to lift up and elevate the dignity and the value and the sanctity of marriage and talk about God's ideals for marriage and, and hold it up in this incredibly glorious sort of way. At the same time, you're also trying to minister love and grace to those who have gone through the tragic, painful reality of divorce and remind them that they are not damaged goods or second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, that they have not committed some unpardonable sin. And pastorally, it can feel like to say anything on one side or the other, you're going you're to get objections raised, <clears throat> right? Lift up the value of marriage. Marriage is intended to be this glorious, permanent thing. And those who have gone through divorce say like, well, ah, am I... Am I you know, damaged goods, or if I start to say, you, you've received grace, you've received mercy, and, and maybe there was a reason why the divorce happened, others will come along and say, well, you, you're lowering the bar on God's glorious uh, call for marriage. And so friends, join me on the tightrope. 
Join me in the tension that we all feel as Christians trying to follow Jesus, who, as we just sang about, is just and kind. Welcome to the God of the Bible. Let's do a survey. I want to I walk you through a decent amount. Like I said, there's more resources up on the website. I can't, uh, I can't spend the amount of time that I would want to on everything. But let me, let me take you to the earliest reference in the Bible to the subject of divorce. This comes from Exodus chapter 21. This is right after the Ten Commandments. Exodus 21, starting in verse 10, says this. It says, if a man takes an additional wife... By the way, the reason why I'm doing this is because all this stuff, all this Old Testament stuff, all this context is running in the background of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And if we want to really be able to understand truly what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount and not import our own assumptions into things, we need to understand the entirety of the Scripture. What did Jesus say? Did he come to abolish the Torah? No, he came to fulfill it. So let's look at the Torah. Exodus 21, verse 10. If a man takes an additional wife, he must not reduce the food, clothing, or marital rights of the first wife. And if he does not do these three things for her, she may leave free of charge without any payment. Oh boy, I've just opened up two more cans of worms. (laughs) Polygamy. And if you look at the rest of the chapter, it's actually, uh, the context is around, uh, legalities around slavery. Man. Not gonna, I'm not gonna, I can't. I just can't. Let me just say this. In the ancient Near Eastern world, things like slavery, first of all, was very different than the slavery that we have walked through in the United States of America. Far more common, far more economic than it was ethnic. And taking extra wives, we know because of Genesis chapters one and two that this is not God's ideal. And I think the best we can say about it is there's kind of a divine accommodation that that God gives us the scriptures. He gives us his word through the lens of ancient Near Eastern cultures. Looks very different than how things are in our culture. And I would say largely the, the, the changes that have happened to lead to our culture are because of the teaching of the Bible and moving in the direction of God's plan for male and female marriage. But What you can see here is there are three obligations that a husband must make for his wife. Food, clothing, and that which is (laughs) translated as marital rights. The Hebrew word is onah. It only occurs just a couple of times in the Bible. Nobody knows exactly how to translate it. I think marital rights is just about as good as you can do. Any kids in the room? (laughs) Ask your parents about it later. Now, if, if you read through some of the extra-biblical literature that happens in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what you see is that uh, rabbis and Jewish scribes, they take this logic. Look, if this, if this applies to a slave wife, a second wife, how much more so would this also apply to a more traditional wife or the, the, the more traditional marriage? You, you can see the logic extending. If this, this is someone who doesn't have uh, the, the same rights as a full citizen, and if it applies to a slave wife, well then regular, normal wives should be provided for food, clothing, and marital rights by their husband. And if not, she is free to leave. Scott McKnight, who's a, a, a biblical scholar, he writes this. He says, On the basis of Exodus 21, 10 through 11, the most common set of obligations for a husband was to provide food, clothing, and shelter, as well as some sense of marital love and intimacy. 
Thus, Papyrus Yadin 10, this is an archaeological find. I believe it's Dead Sea Scrolls. I forget off the top of my head. But this, this archaeological find, you can find lots of these like wedding ceremony. It's a contract. It's a, it's a, it's a legal binding agreement. Thus, Papyrus Yadin 10 records the commitment of a Jewish husband to his wife in these words. I will feed you. I will clothe you. I will bring you into my house. Divorce could be granted when one of these conditions was denied, and later rabbis make it clear that marital love could be strained to the point of divorce for repulsiveness and cruelty. And these are the conditions Jesus is countering in our text. So it's just kind of like a baseline established, right? Provision and and love, there's a baseline established. You fast forward a little bit to Deuteronomy chapter 24, says this, if a man marries a woman, and by the way, this story, this is, this is, um, this is an example of case law. We're used to legislation, legislative law. This is case law. It's like going to tell you a story. It's like a story problem. Uh, the, the philosophical term for it is casuistry, if you want to impress people at your upcoming barbecue. Uh, and it, you're sitting there like, man, what a weird story this is. But, but what most scholars will say is like something like this actually happened and you tell a story like this to try to help train the judges and the kings and the people who are in authority how to make wise decisions in various situations and circumstances. So if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her and send her away from his house. If after leaving his house she goes and becomes another man's wife and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled, for that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Clear? You guys got it? Again, so many things. It's a long, strange example to illustrate a point. Many scholars of the, the Near Eastern culture will talk about a practice that was widespread right then, and actually in certain parts of the world to this day still happens, in which a man would divorce his wife in order to essentially pimp her out to another man. They could marry for the night. That second man could use her for his own uh, sexual pleasure. Then they could get divorced and go back to the first husband. It still happens to this day in certain uh, Muslim parts of the world. So many scholars see that practice behind this sort of case law. By the way, this idea of a divorce certificate, there is nothing like it in the history of the ancient Near Eastern world. David Instone Brewer, who's a scholar from England, writes this. He says, the reference in Deuteronomy 24 to a divorce certificate is unique. Unique in ancient Near Eastern sources. Nowhere. Outside of Judaism, is there any reference to a divorce certificate or any document that would be taken away by every divorced woman? And this document would be needed by women, not by men, because men could marry more than one woman in any case. It would have been a most valuable document for a woman to possess because it gave her the right to remarry. remarry. And without it, she would be under the constant threat of her former husband who could just show up and claim at a later date that she was still married to him and thus charge her with adultery. Do you see the remarkable grace of God present in Deuteronomy chapter 24? To care for a woman who's in a place of deep vulnerability, who's in a place of... And by the way, Deuteronomy 24, like, 
the woman presented in Deuteronomy 24 is not exactly like the, the, the cream of the crop, right? Multiple husbands have been like, I do not like this lady, and divorce her, right? And even in that, God is still gracious to protect her dignity and her value and her worth. How good is our God? And you know, both in Exodus 21 and 24, the freedom to remarry is very clear as day. In a, in a justified divorce, in an in a, in allowable divorce, the point of the certificate is the freedom to remarry. Now, going back to this, this verse, verse 1, Deuteronomy 24, it leads to a translation controversy. It says, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. Now, in the Hebrew, there are two words. The word translated as indecent is the Hebrew word erva. It's alternately traded, translated as nakedness or shame or indecency. It's, it's something in that context. But the, the word something is the Hebrew word davar. And it is the most flexible, the most malleable word in the ancient Hebrew language. It is translated sometimes as a word or a thing. Sometimes it's translated as something, and sometimes it's translated as nothing. The New American Standard uses 120 different English words to translate the Hebrew word devar. It's a very flexible, very malleable word. And Jewish rabbis and scholars debated the meaning of this phrase, something indecent. There's a, a Mishnah that was, it's rabbinical stuff. This is extra biblical stuff, but it gives us an insight into the types of debates that were happening right around the time of Jesus. A couple of rabbis named Shammai and, and Hillel were having a, a fight. They're just a little tiny bit older than Jesus. And this is what the Mishnah Gatim writes. The school of Shammai says, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, for it is written, because he has found in her indecency in anything. But the school of Hillel says he may divorce her even to a minor issue because she burned or oversalted his dish. As it is say, stated, because he has found some unseemly matter in her. See how they're translating it different? Meaning he has found any type of shortcoming in her. Then Rabbi Akiva comes along and says, well, he may divorce her even if he found another woman who's better looking than her and wishes to marry her, as it is stated in that verse, as it comes to pass, if she finds no favor in his eyes. By the way, this is, these are all different subgroups of Pharisees. They're all Pharisees, but different rabbis within the Pharisee tradition are arguing about the meaning of something indecent. In Matthew 19, you know, we're in Matthew 5 for our Sermon on the Mount, but in Matthew 19, there's a fuller conversation that happens between Pharisees and Jesus around this subject. So some Pharisees approached Jesus to test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, here's our phrase, on any grounds? We can know that this debate, this translation debate, is in the background of their question here. Are you on team Shammai or are you on team Hillel? What does Jesus reply? He redirects them. Haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus redirects their debate. Like, well, can you get divorced for this reason or get divorced for that reason? Jesus like, you guys are getting divorced far too lightly. Do you not understand that God's intention for marriage is that it would be lifelong long, permanent, one-flesh covenantal union. 
Well, they ask him, why then did Moses command us, command us, uh uh-oh, to give divorce papers and send her away? And he told them, Moses permitted you. He didn't command you to do it. He, He allowed you to do it because of your hardness of hearts. But it was not supposed to be like that from the beginning. Yeah, God knows that people's hearts can be hard, but this is not a commandment. If something bad happens, you have to get divorced. I tell you, sounds like the Sermon on the Mount, almost exactly the same. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, whew, if the marriage of a man with his wife is like this, it might be better to not get married. Jesus goes, you're darn right. (laughs) Not everyone can accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. So in one statement, Jesus kind of corrects people on all sides of the debate and reframes the focus. He corrects their prescriptiveness. No, Moses didn't prescribe divorce. You don't have to get divorced. And he corrects their permissiveness. No, you can't just get divorced for any old reason you feel like. Jesus does come much closer to the the school of Hillel, the more conservative Uh, Rabbi. Now, again, this next section, I'm going to move through a lot quicker, and I wish I could spend a lot more time, but it's not the point that I want to make today. I want to say these things, and I'll I'll just say this right here. Um, People who love Jesus and love the Bible and are probably smarter than me might even uh, disagree with some of what I'm about to say, but this is my best attempt to try to pull together the answer to this question. Are there other exceptions? Might there be other exceptions? We see very clearly, both Matthew 5 and Matthew chapter 19, that Jesus says, one exception, sexual immorality. Might there be other exceptions? Might there be other things that would lead to what we could call an allowable divorce? And I believe the answer is yes. This is not a uh, wide open yes, but the answer is yes. Seven reasons why I've landed on that. First of all, Jesus uses different words at different times. In, Ma- in Mark and in Luke, he does not give the exception clause. He literally just says, if anyone divorces his wife and gets remarried, he's committed adultery. Zero exceptions. Matthew comes along, and in his recording of Jesus' words, he gives the exception. And what that leads me and many others to conclude is that when Jesus is speaking here, he is speaking to a specific question. He is not saying everything that could be said on the subject of divorce. We know that's true also because of, number two, the nature of the style of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount uses a a specific style. It's almost like, uh, it's actually interesting, I was reading through Sermon on the Mount, comparing things to the book of James, comparing things to the book of Proverbs. How many of you know that a proverb is like this, uh, a short little saying meant to make a point, but a proverb doesn't say everything that could be said about a subject. In fact, sometimes you have different proverbs that seem to kind of point in different directions. Proverbs that bless, you know, wealth and say wealth is this good thing to be used for God's glory. And other Proverbs that say, watch out for wealth. It'll drag you down to the bottom of the sea, right? Like there's, there's these things in Proverbs that say pulling and pushing in one direction. And, and when Jesus is speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount, 
the style, this heightened language, this, this cut off your hand if you were tempted to lust, or, or uh, you know, next week, uh, no vows. And yet in Matthew 20, uh, 26, Jesus makes a, a promise that I will not drink of this. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink of this wine again until the kingdom has come in full. Like there's, well, what is it, Jesus? Are you allowed to make promises? Are you not supposed to make promises? We're, we're supposed to see the point of what is being made. By the way, here, here's how I know that the Sermon on the Mount style needs to be taken into account. What did we learn last week? That lust in the heart is morally equivalent to adultery. And what are we seeing in the passage this week? That adultery is a legitimate grounds for divorce. Do you think, I'll say it this way, if my time in pastoral ministry has taught me anything, it is that virtually all men and a vast majority of women have at one time or another lusted after someone else. Therefore, every single person probably has grounds for divorce on that reading. Is that what Jesus is really getting at, though? No. I actually had one person back at a church in Alaska years ago try to use that logic to say that she had legitimate grounds for divorce. I'm like, that is just not what Jesus is getting at. We need to take the style of the sermon on the mount into account. Number three, Paul comes along years later and makes another addition. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 16, he, he quotes Jesus. He quotes the no exception clause Jesus, the Mark and Luke, or the, yeah, the Mark and Luke version of Jesus, and then says, well, yeah, but if a, an unbelieving partner separates, then you're free to get divorced. You're not bound well, I was like, well, hold on a second. Again, just a flat reading of, Paul, are you contradicting Jesus? And that's what skeptics of the Bible like to come along and say, oh, Paul, Paul didn't really know Jesus. He's just making extra stuff up. Jesus said only adultery. And Paul goes, yeah, well, this other thing too. Or might there be going on, more going on underneath the surface? Number four is something that I just stumbled across this last week in a book by uh, a scholar named Wayne Grudem. In, the, in, in 1 Corinthians, I, I, I actually just put the article up. Go read it. But he, he says that the phrase, in such cases, in such cases in verse 15, probably extends to things that are not the exact same as desertion by an unbelieving spouse, but are similar. Similar types of things that break the marriage covenant. He, he shows grammatically and uh, historically how that phrase is understood. Reason number five, basic human dignity. Going back to what we learned in Exodus 21, the Torah still means something. Food, clothing, marital rights, basic provision, that cruelty and things like abuse and neglect, which the book of Proverbs says is the other side of the coin of abuse. Abuse and neglect are the active and the passive versions of harming another person. Basic human dignity might lead to some other exceptions. Number six, the way that the Bible speaks about God's care for the vulnerable in Proverbs 6, 17 says that God hates, hates hands that shed innocent blood. And I defy you to read the scriptures and come away with a portrait of God who does not have extra care for those who are in a position of vulnerability and specifically in issues like abuse, spousal abuse, that God's heart would be a protective heart. That yes, marriage is intended to be this permanent covenantal thing, but, but John Frame in his systematic theology, sorry, in his ethics book, says that spousal abuse is a violation of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, and is a violation of the marriage covenant and would allow for divorce in those cases. I just find it fascinating that 
passage like Deuteronomy 24, that this divorce certificate, which God gave to be a protection for women, even a not great woman, like in Deuteronomy 24, sometimes the church just flips it around backwards and uses it as a way to say, no, you have to stay in some sort of abusive situation. And lastly, we're given the word, but we're also given the spirit and we're also given community. You, if you've been around Sound City for any length of time, you've heard me say this. The, the Bible is not an NFL rule book that gives us answers and, and a, a you know, checklist to follow in every possible situation. The Bible gives us principles to follow. But God gives us his spirit. And God gives us community where we walk these things out together. You know, <laughs> reading through the, the Mishnah this week, the Mishnah is an NFL rule book. The Mishnah is literally, well, in this case, you must do this. And in this case, you must do that. And in this case, you must do that. It is, it is so funny to read the Bible and then go read the Mishnah back to back because the Mishnah is literally their attempt to codify every single thing. I came across a passion, a passage, and, and cover yours if this might make you blush, but I came across a passage where the rabbis tried to prescribe how often a husband and wife ought to, the, the marital rights portion of the thing. And it was dependent upon the man's job. And it was always the man is obligated to give romantic love to the wife. So apparently men were the ones getting the headaches back in the day or whatever. So, and they said if you, you know, if a man is like a soldier or a merchant, you know, a few times a year, if he works with his hands, if he works in the fields a few times a week, but if a man is unemployed, the mission literally says daily. Every day, if you're unemployed, you go get a job or you go hang out with your wife. <laughs> And you just, you read that, it's like, that is just not how the Bible operates. God gives us his scripture to give us these principles and these these teachings. And then he says, I give you my spirit. And God gives his church elders to make wise decisions. And he gives us community where we can come alongside each other. Now listen, all that to say, yes, I do believe there are biblically allowable exceptions that could lead to divorce. But I think Craig Keener says it really well. He says this, Jesus' teaching on the matter was stated hyperbolically for a reason. Yes, there may be exceptions, but Jesus' point is that we dare not look for the exceptions. They are only the last resort when all else has failed. A tough marriage is not an excuse to bail out. Yes, there might be exceptions, and I've been there in the room handful of occasions with tears in my eyes and theirs to say, yeah, this, this marriage is over. But in our day, much like Jesus' day, divorce is far too easy. And if I could just say it in, with all love and respect in the world, we give up so easily. God knows about this. God knows about this. You know, when, when Jesus said he came to fulfill all scripture, it makes me think of Jeremiah chapter three. Prophet Jeremiah, in the days of King Josiah, the Lord asked me, hey, Jeremiah, have you seen what unfaithful Israel has done? She has ascended every high hill and gone under every green tree to prostitute herself. And I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me, but she didn't return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. 
So what is God's response? I observed that it was because unfaithful Israel had committed adultery that I had sent her away and God says I gave her a certificate of divorce. You know that our God knows what it's like to have an unfaithful bride, to have an adulterous bride. Do you know that our God knows what it's like to say, enough, and to write a certificate of divorce? And yet we know that even in our unfaithfulness, our God is faithful to pursue in love. Because just a few verses later, he tells the prophet Jeremiah, go proclaim these words to the north and say, return, unfaithful Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not look on you with anger, for I am unfailing in my love. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not be angry forever. So even when our God had just caused to divorce his unfaithful wife, what is the response of our God? Faithful, steadfast, pursuing, redeeming, reconciling love. Friends, this is the God who sent his son Jesus, who referred to himself all the time in his parables and in his teachings as the what? The bridegroom. The bridegroom who has come. God in the flesh to pursue the people that he loves but who have been unfaithful. And when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus was was stripped and beaten and, and had a crown of thorns placed on his head and nails driven through his hands and his feet, it is the ultimate expression of God's faithful and redeeming love to say, I will not treat you according to your unfaithfulness. I will take the penalty upon myself and I will love you and I will redeem you with my perfect love. Friends, this is the gospel that we believe and that we treasure. Amen? That though we have been an unfaithful bride, Jesus redeems us with his love. And we know that his word is true and we know that his forgiveness is real because he didn't stay dead. He rose on the third day. And if Jesus' dead body can rise on the third day, then our dead relationship with God can rise on the third day. And by the way, he can redeem all things if we would but ask him. You know what's amazing? Ephesians chapter five, where the apostle Paul writes his famous, uh, you know, Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride thing. Do you know what it says that Jesus does for the bride in those verses? It says he nourishes or feeds her dresses her in white clothing and cherishes and loves his bride. Oh, I don't know. That sure sounds a lot like Exodus 21 to me. Blew my mind when I read that. So let me close with some some appeals. To those of you who are married, I appeal to you to make God your highest priority. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, not your spouse, not your children, not your job, not your hobbies. Make God your highest and number one priority. I appeal to you to cultivate enjoyment, the joy that is present between the man and the woman in those earliest pages of Genesis. It breaks into song. Some of you need to learn how to play and how to have joy and how to have fun with your spouse. I appeal to you to be surrounded by other believers in community. I'll say that community is not optional. Your marriage needs more than just the two of you to really work. I appeal to you to deal with the little things sooner than later. Deal with the lusts of the heart. Deal with the angers of the heart. Deal with the apathy or the coldness. Deal with those things that seem very little, like in the Song of Solomon where it talks about the little foxes that show up and then ruin the whole vineyard. Deal with those things sooner than later. I appeal to you to persevere through hard times. And I also appeal to you to love and serve those who are not married. One of the things about a church, especially a church like ours in a suburban demographic where many, if not most people, are married with children or grandchildren is that those who are not married can feel very on the outside or on the outskirts. And so for those of you who are married, I appeal to you to, when you're doing family time or you're doing family activities, bring along your unmarried or even divorced friends to show them that they're not second-class citizens in the kingdom and the family. To those who are still unmarried, I charge you to know your worth. Look, marriage is this incredible thing, but what did I say at the beginning? Marriage isn't ultimate. Someday, human marriage, as we know, will be done. We'll be like the angels, Jesus said. Neither given in marriage, and, and so marriage isn't ultimate, don't believe the lie of the culture and don't believe the overemphasis sometimes in the American church that, that has the whole, like, you complete me thing. I hate that. You're not incomplete on your own. Jesus was himself single. And he died and rose again to give his life for us collectively, his bride. If applicable, get ready for marriage. Statistically speaking, most of you who are not married will at some point be married, so get yourself ready for it. And that means you need to love, serve, and, and even counsel your married friends. Hang out with them. Give them perspective that they forgot. They're changing diapers and doing terrible things like the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Like, well, they're just divided with earthly things. Like, yeah, no kidding. So like, go remind them of other things and learn from your married friends. To those who have gone through the painful tragedy of divorce, I just simply give you this word that God understands and God redeems. God understands and God redeems. I don't know your specific circumstances. Some of you, many of you, there probably were valid reasons for the divorce. Some of you, maybe there were not. In either case, the grace of God in Christ Jesus can be yours. And then lastly to all, I say, remember the ultimate marriage. Remember the ultimate marriage. One day, we're going to hear the trumpet sound. The sky will break open. And all the brokenness and all the devastation in our world will be done away with. 
And John the Revelator tells us we're going to sit down at the best wedding party you've ever been to. Prophet Isaiah says the choicest of meats and the sweetest of wines. And we'll feast with our bridegroom, Jesus, in eternity forever. And until that day, may we remain faithful. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that even in our unfaithfulness, all of us, our unfaithfulness, you have been perfectly faithful. Lord, we thank you that even in broken, difficult situations like divorce, we can trust you that you are a redeeming God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to avoid a a low view of marriage, especially in a culture like ours that does not honor commitment and, and does not honor the permanence of marriage the way that you intend for us to. So Lord, would you help us to be salt and light? Would you help us to shine like stars with our radical commitments to our marriages? At the same time, Lord, would you help us avoid that, that legalistic trap, that prideful trap looking down on others or not protecting those who are in a position of vulnerability. Lord, we ask you to help us and remind us daily of your love, even now as we go to the table of the Lord and we eat and drink of this meager meal. May we be reminded of the wedding supper of the Lamb that is to come. I pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.